Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Kristen Mark, who is the Jocelyn Elders Endowed Chair and Professor in Sexual Health Education at the Institute for Sexual and Gender Health at the University of Minnesota Medical School. She is a sex and relationship researcher, educator, and therapist, and her work centers around improving the sexual and romantic lives of individuals and couples. Dr. Mark is also an ASEX-certified sex educator. In this show, we're going to be talking all about sex education. We'll discuss different approaches around the world, the methods that do and don't work, and why pleasure needs to be a central focus of sex ed. We'll also dive into Kristen's body of research and explore questions such as how to keep the spark alive in long-term relationships, how bisexual people can cultivate healthy relationships in the face of bisexual stigma, and how people with a history of sexual trauma can go on to live happy, pleasure-filled sex lives. I can't wait for this conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Kristen, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. So I just discovered this week that we've officially known each other for nine years. I had a Facebook memory (laughs) pop up of the first time we met, which was at the International Association for Relationship Research Conference in Chicago. And I am so glad we met because since then, we've become research collaborators and we've traveled around the world together learning about sex through our conferences and study abroad courses. And it's been a lot of fun. So I'm really looking forward to our next adventure. Yes, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Now, before we dive into your work, I always like to begin by asking my guests a little bit about their professional journey. So can you tell us a little bit about your backstory? How did you come to be a sex educator, researcher, and therapist who does it all? (laughs) Well, um, yeah, it is always an interesting question for what we do, right? Because it's not like as little kids, any of us were thinking, I want to, (laughs) I want a career in sex. But, you know, I think I was just really interested in sexuality and sexual health and relationships. And in my undergraduate program, shifted toward that once I sort of realized that I didn't want to be a forensic psychologist after all. (laughs) That was my initial dream, was to be like Clarice from Silence of the Lambs. And I quickly shifted from that after working at Kingston Penitentiary, which was the largest penitentiary in Canada. And I just really didn't enjoy that work. And so, and didn't think it was a good fit for me. So that was my sort of shift into, oh, I didn't know I could study sexual health and like healthy relationships and that this could be something that could be a career. <laughs> you know, I just didn't realize that until until that undergrad class I was taking. And so from there I just really yeah, leaned in and and got involved from the end of undergrad and went to grad school. And yeah, here I am. And you became a researcher and educator first, and the therapy part came a little bit later, right? So why yeah. did you decide to go back and while you were already an established professional, get the degree in sex therapy? Yeah. So my research just has a lot of really relevant clinical outcomes. And so during my first sabbatical at University of Kentucky, which is where I've been for the past decade until I came to Minnesota, I had a sabbatical and there was an opportunity for me to get the clinical experience. One of my master's degrees is in family science. So I had several of the course 
requirements already covered. And it just seemed like a really logical way to spend a really like reasonable and important step in my career to spend a sabbatical doing that clinical work. And um, that has been so helpful for my research. I mean, having the clinical experience, sitting in the room with a patient or a client, like hearing about your your own research being sort of translated in real time is really fascinating. In addition to being able to kind of see where some of the holes in the research are, like not being able to pull from some research to be able to really dive deep into somebody's problem. It's like, oh, I really should look into that. Like we need some empirical work that backs this up. I see it working in real time. Let me do the study now that that empirically supports it. So that has been an amazing addition. It's still part of my work here at Minnesota. And, you know, I hope to also, since I'm part of a larger clinic here now, do more of the sort of actual implementation research around looking into actually testing how this works and how some of our theories are are going into practice. Well, thanks for sharing that. And just to go back to one thing you mentioned, you said you didn't realize at a young age, you know, that this was a career that you could have. And that exact statement comes up so often when I ask this question. And I think it's because most of us, you know, we, we never saw a model when we were younger for, you know, what a sex researcher, therapist, or educator would be. The only <laughs> side story I can mention about that is that I was talking to this woman recently who was pursuing her degree in sex therapy, and she saw the movie Meet the Fockers when she was younger, and Barbara Streisand was playing the sex therapist. And when she saw that movie, she was like, I don't know, 10 or 12 years old, she told her parents afterwards, she's like, I want to be a sex therapist when I grow up, <laughs> right? You know, so unless you are actually exposed to any type of model, you don't really know that it's like a viable career or option that you could pursue. And I certainly didn't realize it until I was already well on my way to getting my graduate degree. So let's talk about sex ed. A big part of your work and my own is breaking the stigma and the taboos that surround sex. So can you tell us why you think sex education is so important and how sex ed can make society healthier overall beyond just reducing STDs and unwanted or unintended pregnancies? Oh, there's so many ways. Yeah, I think it is such a crucial piece. And we are starting to see, you know, just related to sex ed and also related to your last point, we are starting to see more representations of sexual health in a healthy way in, you know, that show sex education is what I'm reminded of such a healthy way of, and like really natural, really seamless to talk about sex and to get that conversation started, but also still highlighting some of the uncomfortabilities. And I think that that lack of comfort is such a, an important piece that sex education addresses because sex ed allows people to understand that, or good sex ed, let's be clear, <laughs> um, allows people to understand that you know, sexual health is a part of your overall health and sexual health is a really natural part of development. And so uh, having a healthy sex life is just as important as having like a good exercise regimen or a good diet or a, you know, we have all of these other pieces of health that seem to be sort of prioritized when having a healthy relationship and having a healthy sex life, whether that's having sex or not, either way, is really, really crucial to our overall health and happiness. And so 
I see sex ed as sort of a way to bridge the gap. And when I talk about sex ed, and I know when you talk about sex ed too, it's doesn't it's not limited to this K twelve setting of sex education, right? There's so many people who didn't get it in K twelve and who are adults now, or who are parents, or who are even grandparents, or like going into older age, wanting to explore their sexuality too. These are all really important moments and ages to integrate sex education in a variety of different ways. And we all need it. So developmentally appropriate sex ed is just so crucial to our healthy development as humans. I also like to think about like the hierarchy of needs, right? Like you Mm -hmm. can think about, sure, avoiding unintended pregnancy and avoiding STIs is maybe lower on that triangle of the hierarchy of needs. But if we really want to have like self-actualized lives, we need to be in places with our partners and with our sex life and ourselves that is genuinely enjoying sexual expression and like reaching our full potential as sexual beings. And I think that that's something that sex ed in adulthood in particular can really, really help with. So many important points there. And I, we're, we're totally on the same page about all of this. We need lifelong sex ed, you know, not just sex ed for teenagers, right? And Part of that is because our sexual wants and needs change over time. Our bodies change, what we're physically capable of, what feels good for us. Like all of these things change and evolve over time. And that's why you can't just have the talk at a young age and think that you've learned everything that you need to know about sex for the rest of your life. And I also love what you said about, you know, sexual health is part of your overall health. And and so these things are intimately intertwined and connected. And what's happening in your sex life can affect your overall health physically and psychologically. And what's happening overall with your health can affect your sex life, right? And so we can't just look at one or the other. We have to consider both and look at the linkages between the two of them. Yeah, definitely. And I think the pursuit of sexual pleasure too is often trivialized or is often thought of as like this thing that isn't that important. Like Oh, you know, I see this a lot. I do a lot of medical education in my current job. And so I'm training people who are going to be physicians on how to ask questions about sex to their patients, because that's often like the first place that most people go when they have a sexual problem is to their physician and their physician may not know anything about sex, right? Like may not have received any education about this at University of Minnesota. They do, but you know, I think it's really, really hard to really emphasize the importance of all of that. And like, if there's a medication that someone's taking and it's decreasing their sexual pleasure, like that is actually probably going to result in a lack of medication adherence. And that's really important. And so for us to trivialize the pursuit of sexual pleasure or to like think about sexual pleasure as not being a human right or something that you should be encouraged to pursue rather than like shamed for, to me, is just such a backwards way to look at all of this. And then that goes back to even our early messages around sex ed of like condom use and that kind of thing. And that just, there's all of these ideas around condoms that decrease sexual pleasure. But if the reason that you're engaging in sex is for sexual pleasure, you're not going to use a condom if you think that it takes away your sexual pleasure. So there's just all of these pieces where we really could have along the way integrated these messages of sexual pleasure to have much more effective sexual health, you know, campaigns and public health campaigns to encourage these things, but there's been such a hesitancy to include those messages. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up the piece about pleasure because I was going to ask you about this. You know, pleasure is often totally neglected in sex ed. I know it was neglected in my own sex ed. You know, all I learned was the basic mechanics of heterosexual penile vaginal intercourse and a little bit about how to protect myself from some of the risks of sex, right? So sex was just kind of always framed as this risky, dangerous thing. They never talked about how to have good sex or how to have pleasurable sex or why that's important. And what we see in the research is that pleasure-focused sex ed can actually lead people to have not just better sex, but safer sex. So for example, in some interventions around condom use, they talk about how to make using condoms more pleasurable. So are there any other, you know, sort of practical ways that we can kind of incorporate pleasure into sex ed that can help people not just be healthier overall in terms of their risk for STDs and unwanted pregnancies and so forth, but, you know, also just how incorporating that pleasure component can make sex better and make our health better. Yeah, I think there are two main ways that I've seen that play out or that I think are really important to that pleasure message. And one of them is related to consent and the other is related to inclusivity. So like with consent, for example, if we could reframe consent as like consent is sexy, (laughs) because really consent is sexy, right? It's like really, really hot to realize that your partner like respects you and wants to make sure that you're there for the right reasons and like is like really wanting to get an enthusiastic consent from you. That's really hot. And that should be framed as such, as opposed to this, like reading each other's nonverbal cues and trying to navigate that also well, often under the influence. Like there's just, that's, we really need a rebranding of consent as being incredibly sexy for us to, and to start doing more in consent education in integrate, integrated into our sex ed. And then inclusivity wise, like you know, you mentioned that your sex ed was super heterocentric. So was mine. It was, you know, in fact, they separated out boys and girls. Same. And that's just like, what a missed opportunity to be educated on something that seems so unfamiliar to you. Like if I could have learned about wet dreams that boys had and could have learned about that kind of thing, and boys could have learned about menstruation, which is what we were learning at that point, you know, I think that would have been really helpful, actually, for us to have an empathy for each other and like an understanding. Instead, we were shielded from that information. And then anyone who doesn't fall within this like gender binary gets completely left out of that conversation. And I think, you know, for us to move away from that heterocentric and focus more on pleasure and on like, what, why do people have sex? Like people, no matter what your identity, no matter what your gender identity or sexual identity is, why do people have sex? Well, it's for the pursuit overwhelmingly of sexual pleasure. It's pretty rare that people are engaging in sex to get pregnant. (laughs) Most of the time they're, they're avoiding it. And yet our sex ed teaches us that that's the only reason people have sex, which is simply inaccurate. And so that piece allows for this opportunity for inclusivity. And I think it allows for us to really move away from that binary and move away from that like super heterocentric focus on like purity pledges and these things that really just like shame women and also make men think that women don't want sex or shouldn't have sex either. By making it that binary heterocentric approach, you're actually disenfranchising heterosexual cisgender people just as much as you're disenfranchising non-heterosexual non-cisgender people. And so I think we, if we could shift that conversation over to pleasure, we would have an opportunity to really make a difference there. 
Yeah. So sounds like there's a lot of problems with sex ed <laughs> and the <laughs> yeah. lack of pleasure focus is, is one of them. We also know that in the United States, there's this big emphasis on abstinence and saving yourself for marriage. And, you know, it's also unrealistic to promote this idea of abstinence in an era when the average age of marriage is close to 30, right? <laughs> so you're telling young teens, like, don't have sex, keep it in your pants for another 15, 16 years. And it's just like, that's not a feasible, realistic message. You know, we know the average age of first sex is 16 to 17 in the US, right? So we're not equipping people with the tools and skills they need. And we're not presenting things in a way that is realistic for the developmental time course. So we do know that there are programs of sex ed that work better than the ones in the U.S., right? In the U.S., with the abstinence focus, we see amongst the highest rates of teen pregnancies, teen STDs, and teen abortions in the industrialized world, but things work better in other places. One of those countries where we see a different approach to sex ed is the Netherlands. And both you and I are intimately familiar with how the sex ed program there works because we've taught study abroad courses in Amsterdam. So for people who might not be familiar with it, tell us a little bit about how the Dutch model of sex education works and how adopting an approach like that could potentially improve American sexual health. Yeah, it's so great there. Um, as you know, we've had lots of fun in Amsterdam. <laughs> so the Dutch approach has a real developmental focus, and there's comprehensive, inclusive sex education from preschool onward. And that is mandated by the country, you know, at the federal level, as we would refer to it here in these states. Now, we, we do begin to see like there is a Bible belt in the Netherlands. And so they do have to deal with some, some pushback against some of this. And they do find those areas do tend to find ways around teaching the fully inclusive, fully comprehensive model. However, the vast majority of the country does teach this very inclusive model from kindergarten, from preschool all the way through. And what this results in is like kids at such a young age having such a vast amount of knowledge around their bodies, bodily autonomy, consent, like that's the stuff that they're learning in preschool. I feel like you bring this up here and people are like, you will suddenly see a headline saying like teaching kindergartners how to put on a condom. Like, no, that would be a silly lesson. And also it wouldn't do any harm because they'd probably just think it was a balloon. They like wouldn't understand what it was that they were touching, but it also wouldn't be effective because they don't understand. It's not developmentally appropriate. And so there just needs to be that developmental psych psychology piece there where we do know where children's brains are at different points and what sorts of concepts they can grasp. And you create sex ed that is in line with that. And so that those messages around consent and around like bodily autonomy are so crucial for so many reasons. I, I love this one example that... Um, this story I tell my students regularly around like we were in the Netherlands and we were talking about how consent was starting to be integrated into our sex education in high school and how we were starting to see more messages around consent being taught explicitly. And these high, we were talking to these high school boys and they were like, wait, what, what you're teaching consent? Like, to high schoolers, to people our age. And they were just so shocked that we were teaching it that honestly, my initial reaction was like, oh, yeah, you don't know what consent is? Like, I thought that they didn't know what it was. But no, they were just so appalled that you would need to teach a thing such as consent 
to adults to, or sorry, to adolescents, like that they had learned that in preschool. Like they learned, Mm -hmm. you don't touch someone without their explicit permission, period, end of story. And so that was so striking to me that like these high school boys were just like disgusted by our sex education system, (laughs) not teaching consent until high school. Like that is insane. And so their sexual assault rates do tend to be lower than ours. And part of that is because, you know, we do teach like respect, mutual respect, and this idea that like, no, you don't have a right to a woman's body. Similarly, abortion is, you know, widely available and is the lowest, some of the lowest rates of abortion in the world. So, you know, I think that there's... um it's just a very different model and the Dutch are very pragmatic. And my, my course in particular had a focus on how do we bring this back to the States? How do we translate? What are some of the barriers in place that don't allow us to actually make these types of moves here? And many of those have to do with the culture. Like the Dutch culture is just very, very pragmatic. They approach their drug regulation pragmatically. They were, you know, the first country to, for marriage equality for very pragmatic reasons. Like it's just a very, which I love because I'm also very pragmatic, but I think it's a really, really effective model. And if other countries could adopt this lifelong approach to learning, we would see incredible outcomes with that. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, I always get that same reaction when I tell people, oh, they're teaching preschoolers and kindergartners sex. You know, they're, they're not teaching them the mechanics of sex. They're teaching them how to communicate. They're teaching them the proper names for their anatomy instead of euphemisms. And so you're just equipping them with developmentally appropriate information that is going to serve them well for the rest of their lives. And, when the lessons get a little bit more advanced, you know, this is one of the things that I found really fascinating. In my course, I actually had the people who created the curriculum that's used in more than half of all Dutch schools. I had them come in and talk to my students when we were in Amsterdam, and they gave us some of the materials that they give to their students. And they go into so much more depth and detail in terms of things like communication practices than you would get in the States. So for example, they have this whole scenario in there about how do you navigate a situation when you want to use a condom, but your partner doesn't, right? And so it presents these sort of challenging scenarios and gives you practical ways to work through them. And, you know, here in the US, we, we don't go anywhere near that kind of stuff. We just give people the message, just say, no, don't do it, don't have sex. But over there, they're getting so much more information, so much more practical information about how to communicate about sex. And I think when you see that, and then you look at the fact that they have lower rates of teen pregnancies and teen STIs and better sexual health outcomes overall, it starts to make a lot of sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, they even integrated into the arts. Like there's this one organization, I don't know if you met with them or not, but they do plays around, um, dramatic sort of plays around like looking at how to navigate those types of situations. And and then they travel around to different schools and, and do that. I mean, it's an approach that is free of the shame and free of the guilt. And I think that that's something that really holds down so many American adults when it comes to really truly expressing themselves sexually and like truly feeling like they can get to that self-actualized p- place for their sexual health. 
Yeah. Now, beyond sex ed, the Dutch do a lot of things differently when it comes to sex. So (laughs) what else have you learned in your study abroad courses about how they approach sex and maybe what people in other countries can learn from them? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think they approach it in like a very frank way, right? Just like super straightforward and very blunt. And I think that that's really nice. It's really refreshing. Talking about sex is a lot easier there. Uh, It seems to be you know, I think there's less acceptance of the red light district in general throughout the Dutch population than maybe we perceive it to be. There's, I wouldn't say that that's like a fully supported industry with the general public in the Netherlands, but there's certainly a ton of conversation going on about it. And you don't, you also like, you know, you see sexual health campaigns of like, stickers everywhere. And like, it's just all very open. Same thing with gender, you know, with gender and with sexuality too. There's just a lot of openness around all of that stuff and encouragement to express yourself and find your own sort of, um, who are you and how does your sexuality fit with who you are as an individual? Yeah. And one of the other things I see is sort of this idea of sex and sexual pleasure as kind of this fundamental human right, right? We're all entitled to pleasurable sex. And so I think that that also ties in with their their approach to sex ed, which is equipping people with the tools to not just be healthier, but to also have better sex. Yeah. And the World Association for Sexual Health just came out with their declaration of sexual pleasure as a human right. Like it is, I mean, yeah, we, the rest of the world really needs to get on board with that. And I would say North America is not there yet. That's for sure. Yep. And it'll probably be a while before we get there, but we're fortunate to have Kristen working to try and help move that along a little bit faster. I um, Also, a project that I'm working on right now is called the Abstinence Project, and it's going to launch in like September, I think. And it's highlighting some of these stories of like, it's a, it's a project that's looking to uncover the shames, uncover the harm and the shame that abstinence-only sex education does, especially within the LGBTQ community, but just generally. And these stories are just so fascinating of like the, all of the ways in which abstinence-only sex education really harms people into adulthood. And that sticks with you. It's not something that just goes away. It's those messages that we get as kids and as adolescents. It's a really influential time. And if you're getting these messages that sex is dirty and sex is bad and you shouldn't do it. And if you do, you will not be loved. You know, these are really harmful messages that kids are getting and they're still getting them. Like this hasn't changed in our lifetime at all. It hasn't, if anything in at times it's gotten worse. And so I just really love this project because of its like ability to kind of highlight those real life stories of the ways in which abstinence only sex ed has really harmed people. Yeah. I love all the work that you're doing and I can't wait to dive more into it. But before we do, let's take a moment to thank our friends over at Promescent for sponsoring this week's episode. If you haven't checked out Promescent yet, you should. They have a whole line of sexual health and wellness products, including a female arousal gel, lubricants that come in several varieties, and their signature delay spray, which is designed to help men last longer in bed. Now, Kristen, you've actually published a study evaluating the effectiveness of Promescence Delay Spray. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found there? Yeah, I did. That was... uh... 
a, a study that we did where we looked at how it impacted the quality of their sexual experience. And we did find that it significantly positively impacted the quality of their sexual experience on days that they used promescent versus days that they did not. Also, we collected some really interesting qualitative data that I'm not sure if we published in that paper or not, but the qualitative data were from the partners and the partner response was also really positive where across the board, no numbing on them. And it was just really a positive experience for the partner as well. Yes, so can make you last longer and linked to increased satisfaction for all partners involved. So there you have it. The data show that it works. To learn more about Promescent and to place an order, head over to promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T.com. All right, Kristen, let's dive into more of your research. You've conducted studies on a lot of different topics that I think are worth addressing. I mean, we could talk for hours about this, but to begin, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you've done on keeping the spark alive in long-term relationships? You published an extensive review paper recently looking at how couples maintain sexual desire over time. So what are some of the key takeaways from that? Yeah, that was great. I loved that paper because one of the biggest questions I always get is like, how do you do that? (laughs) Right. And so this paper sort of answered that question of like, here's what the research thus far has shown that contributes to this. How do you do this? And we came up with a conceptual model that classified things into like individual level factors. So some important pieces there that we found were like, making sure, you know, if you're too tired, if you're, uh, and that becomes chronic, (laughs) that's a problem. Um, Stress, um, things like individual body image. If you don't feel great about yourself, you're probably not going to be able to or want to maintain your desire in your long-term relationship or feel desired or desirable. And then there were these interpersonal factors. And I would say that these are probably the most sort of researched. And these are things like, communication with your partner, couples who communicate more about sex and about non-sex, so just general day-to-day, tend to be better at keeping the spark alive in longer-term relationships. Also, things like the extent to which you maintain a level of autonomy in your relationship. So for each of you, how do you have, do you have some differentiation of the self or are you completely enmeshed? And couples who have more differentiation of the self tend to be better at maintaining that spark in longer term. And I know you had my good friend and colleague, Amy Muse on recently. And I think you all talked about the sexual communal strength stuff, which is really important too, of really making sure that each of you are focused on meeting each other's sexual needs and the extent to it. And the more you are focused on that and the more you're able to do that, the higher likelihood of maintaining that desire in long-term relationships. Mm -hmm. And then there are also these like societal things. So these are things like, um, when, you know, these gendered expectations that exist that really stem from sex ed. And this is sort of one of those streams that's, that, keeps all of my research together in a thread is this idea that when we are taught that women need to be gatekeepers of sex and men need to always pursue sex, that does not bode well for maintaining a desire in longer term relationships. And that idea that men should always be ready and willing to have sex at any given time is really actually quite harmful to men because then when they experience low sexual desire, they feel embarrassed about it. They feel like there's not somewhere that they can go to talk about it, that their like manhood is 
at risk of being exposed as fake or, or minimal. And so there's really all of these like societal pieces that feed into that and these expectations that are placed upon us that can be quite harmful for maintaining desire in longer term relationships. It's entirely normal for sexual desire to ebb and flow throughout one's life. And so there's certainly lots of evidence to support that. And that it's going to change depending on what relationship you're in and depending on all of these variety of like individual level factors, your health, you know, how's your overall health doing? Are you experiencing a medical issue? All of these things impact our sexual desire. And knowing that it's that complex and knowing that there's that many factors, I think is sort of hopeful almost <laughs> because it really gives you lots of different way, lots of different inroads into potentially sparking back up that spark. Whereas, you know, if you try one avenue and it doesn't work, it can kind of feel disappointing if there aren't several things for you to try. So I think that's been a really, I think that's a hopeful message is that it is, there are a lot of things that impact desire. So there's a lot of things for you to try in order to really build that back up. But our relationships definitely matter. And like that satisfaction level within relationships is really important and talking about being able to navigate how do you what are the like mechanisms that we can employ here to turn this around and being willing to have that conversation and bring up that elephant in the room is a tough thing to do for couples i've seen that clinically certainly but it's a really important thing to do if you want to move your sex life to a place of like real enjoyment and seeing one another and knowing one another intimately in that way Yep. So it sounds like desire is very complex and multifaceted and it's biopsychosocial. You know, I think a lot of people tend to think about sexual desire as being just a function of hormones and that, you know, if you have a hormonal imbalance, like that's just the cause and you just need to get your hormones right and desire will come back. But the reality is that there are biological, psychological, social and environmental factors, cultural factors that can all come in and influence your level of desire. And also over the last year and a half, you know, we've seen that this pandemic has also influenced sexual desire as well, in part because it's created different levels of stress and loneliness and these other challenges that people have experienced. So we need to think about desire through this very broad lens. And I think you're absolutely right that it's a hopeful message in the sense that there are lots of things you can try. And if one thing doesn't work, try something else. But I think that also speaks to the need to figure out, you know, well, if desire goes away or disappears in a relationship, you need to try and figure out what was the cause of that in order to find the most effective and appropriate solution. Now, speaking of sexual desire, you know, you've also done some studies on sexual desire discrepancies where one partner wants a drastically different amount of sex than the other partner. And this is one of the most common issues that prompts people to seek sex therapy, and I'm sure you see it all the time. So what can you tell us about some practical ways of navigating the situation if you're in a relationship where the partners just want really different amounts of sex? Yeah, that elephant in the room is often that exact thing, right? Of like, we know that we have this gap and we don't know how to fix it. And I think sexual rejection is a really, um, it's a really hard thing for a couple to on both sides, like rejecting your partner and getting rejected sexually are two really, really hard things to take. And they can build up resentment within a relationship in a way that can be really harmful for the relationship. So 
you know, not allowing for that to build up is a really crucial component to making sure that you address it, like sort of address it before it gets too bad. Because that resentment piece of the sexual rejection can become problematic. Our research has found that like couples-based approaches tend to be far more successful than individual level approaches. So one of my former students, Laura Vowles, her and I published a study that looked at what are the most effective strategies for addressing desire discrepancy. And one of those was so often we can get into this habit of wanting to say like, okay, I don't want sex as much as my partner. So I'm just going to work on myself and I'm going to try and come up to their level. Or I'm not going to, I want sex way more than my partner. So I'm just going to like, I'll just masturbate behind the scenes and I'll just like meet my own sexual needs and I won't rely on them anymore. Those types of approaches are not effective at addressing desire discrepancy because they don't include the relationship. And so that desire discrepancy piece doesn't actually end up getting addressed. So instead, having a conversation with your partner, talking about ways to meet in the middle and not pathologizing the person with lower sexual desire relative to their partner is also really crucial. And these gender differences that we see, like I think because of exactly what you said earlier about people assuming that desire is this hormonal piece, which is like such a small, small piece of the puzzle of desire. the I, there's always this assumption that like men in heterosexual or mixed sex relationships will often have higher desire than their partner. Our research does not support that. And so we haven't seen that there's, especially in these contexts of these long-term or longer-term relationships, we don't really see that there's this. Um, and also, especially when we look day to day. So when we look on a daily level, we really see no gender differences whatsoever. And so that just tells us that these uh, stereotypes are just off. (laughs) And I think other ways to address desire discrepancy, you know, working toward meeting one another's sexual needs and like those sexual needs might be things that can be achieved without sex, right? So often maybe someone's looking for intimacy and maybe you'd be willing to get your intimacy in ways that don't involve your sort of run-of-the-mill what you used to call sex and maybe you could get them in other ways also like getting outside of the box of that monotonous everyday sex (laughs) your a lot of your work has spoken to this around like just trying to get out of that box and get into some more adventurous stuff like trying new things together whether that and sexual yes but even non-sexual like trying new things together that self-expansion is so critical for feeling desire and for like closing that gap of desire discrepancy. So really working together as a team to address it instead of doing this individual stuff and then trying to get out of that monotonous routine and understanding that sexual rejection hurts. And so, you know, talking to your partner about that, letting them know that you still care about them, even if you reject them for sex and like explaining the reason why you maybe don't feel like having sex today or like, um, explaining the reason why you don't always initiate sex is is really, really helpful. Yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned it's important not to pathologize the partner with low desire. It's also important not to pathologize the partner with higher desire, right? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes they're seen as being hypersexual or addicted to sex or something, you know, whatever it is that that you want to say. And so it's important to really try and understand each other and where you're coming from in terms of finding a couple-oriented solution for moving past that. Now, 
something else I wanted to talk about is you've also done some work looking at bisexuality in relationships that I think is really important to address. And we know that when bisexual people get into relationships, their sexuality is often presumed to be either heterosexual or gay based on the gender of the person they're partnered with. And so their bisexuality gets erased. So can you tell us what you found in terms of how can bisexual people cultivate healthy and satisfying relationships in the face of this bi-erasure and maybe how their partners can support them in that. Yeah. And it turns out that like partners are quite important in supporting them in that. So we did a really interesting couples-based study and did find that not only was the bisexual individual's satisfaction improved when they felt seen, when they felt like they could be out to their to important people in their life, when they felt like their bisexual identity actually facilitated more intimacy. That was a really big piece that we found is that like people who identified as bisexual, if they felt like that bisexual identity kind of cultivated a level of intimacy with their partner when they feel seen by their partner because of their bisexual identity, like that piece was really important for satisfaction in those relationships. And not only was it important for their satisfaction, sexual and relationship, but also for their partner's satisfaction. So their own feelings of like being seen and being acknowledged as part of the LGBTQ community from their partner was really important for their satisfaction in the relationship. What also happens within the context of bisexuality is you don't feel gay enough to be part of the gay community, but don't feel straight enough to be part of the straight community. And then there's just this like in-between piece. I think we're starting to see more bi-visibility happening, which is amazing. I love it. But it is really hard because many people feel when they get into those longer term relationships that they just they lose part of their self, like they lose part of their identity. And if you can think of any other identity component, I think we see this a lot when people go to the transition to parenthood, for example, like you lose part of your identity and that doesn't bode well for your relationship or for your satisfaction in life, right? We know that we need to maintain this part of our identity. So same thing with this bisexuality piece. We need to pull that into our same-sex or mixed-sex relationships and really acknowledge that that is still part of one's identity, even if we're not engaging in the behaviors that are stereotypically associated with it. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that work because of um, just how it highlighted the real need to feel seen by people who are important in your life and that outness is is valuable even in the context of these like seemingly straight presenting couples because that study was mostly looking at like particularly because we live in such a heterocentric society like okay you present as this like privileged group of heterosexual and so are you benefiting from that privilege and what we found was no they're not benefiting mm-hmm. from that privilege because they're not getting they're not being seen as them. So, and then we had a qualitative piece to that too, that just unraveled like a ton of really interesting data around, uh, how their partners can help them feel seen. Yeah. And all of that speaks to the importance of being your authentic self and your authentic sexual self in your relationships. Now, another topic you've studied, we're running short on time, but I really want to get into this, is the work that you've done on sexual trauma and specifically how women with a history of sexual trauma can navigate their sex lives in relationships. We know that sexual trauma is all too common and it can have lingering effects. And I think there's often this assumption that if you've experienced trauma that your sex life will never be good again, right? People sort of often assume that you know that's self-defining. So what have you found in your research about how people can cultivate 
healthy and satisfying sex lives when they have a history of trauma. Yeah. So we've published a couple of papers on this. One of them was related to consent. And that consent paper really showed us how important consent was to conversations around sex, post-sexual trauma, which is perhaps not surprising in and of itself. But I think that what was surprising of those data was the ways in which their partners approached that consent conversation and the ways in which the women navigated that. So we have a few, we have two papers, one that looks at like strategies that were used in order to navigate that conversation. And for many women, it wasn't something that they talked about with many of their partners before their current partners. One of the requirements of the study was that they need to be in happy, healthy, satisfying relationships, self-defined. And that those women really felt like a crucial component of this was the ability to talk openly about sex with their partner. That was the only thing that allowed them to kind of like get to this point of feeling safe in their relationship and feeling that level of trust. And it really highlighted how important feelings of safety, sexual safety and trust and communication and like openness and being able to be themselves genuinely was so crucial to having that bond that allowed for them to move toward a, se- a healthy sexual relationship with that partner. And they were they were in very healthy, happy relationships, like talked about having great sex lives that really fulfilled them in ways that they never thought possible. And all of that was based on developing a level of open communication and trust, baseline trust in that relationship and feeling safe to be yourself in front of your partner in a vulnerable position. Yeah. And it, it goes back to, you know, being your authentic self. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's so important that you're doing this work because, like I said, there's a lot of people who just think of sexual trauma as something that is going to prevent you from ever having a great sex life. And I think by showing that, you know, here are the steps, here are the ways that people can move on from trauma and feel safe in their relationships and cultivate happy, healthy sex lives is an important and I think reassuring message for a lot of people, because as I said, sexual trauma is all too common and something that often is just never talked about at all, including in the context of our romantic relationships. Uh, I actually read a study recently on sexual secrets and the things that people hide. And the single most common thing that women reported hiding from their partners was history of sexual victimization. And for those who had disclosed sexual secrets, for the most part, they reported positive effects that it brought them closer to their partner and it improved their relationship and their partner responded favorably to the information and, and worked with them to, you know, try and understand and meet them in a way that would, would allow them to build a healthy sex life together. So again, I think it speaks to the importance of, you know, being open and honest and having that important level of communication with your partner. And that all goes back to the sex ed and teaching people the skills they need to have those conversations in the first place. Yeah. So many people are missing those skills. And there were a few participants who said like they tried to disclose this in prior relationships and then their partner kind of looked at them Mm -hmm. differently or like perceived them differently. And that kind of ruined the relationship. And so that disclosure can be really scary. But I think that's also part of it too, is like partner responses. Like those are also shaped by the way that we were taught about sex and that we see this as someone having it being like damaged goods or something like that. And that's just an awful way to think about sex as a commodification as a you know a commodity in that way like yeah it's it's not healthy and i think if people could begin to look at sex as more of a part of our overall health and well-being 
and that we will hopefully achieve with with good, better sex ed over time yeah. throughout the lifespan. Hopefully so. Well, thank you so much, Kristen, for this amazing conversation. It was a pleasure to have you here. <laughs> Please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work. Yeah. So I'm at the Institute for Sexual and Gender Health at University of Minnesota Medical School. So you can go to our website there or to my website, kristenmark.com or Dr. Kristen Mark on Instagram. Thanks again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>